for our guests, and I did not meet you on your way in. My name is Bill, and it's my privilege to serve as the lead pastor here at the table. And I know when you come into a new church, sometimes it's, it's hard. Maybe you're not exactly sure what to expect and things like that. But here's what I would tell you is our desire for you um, while you are here at the table. And our desire is to see your faith come alive. And what we mean by that is uh, to see faith be that thing that is the determining factor in everything that you do. Um, it's not just about what happens so that we get to go to heaven when we die, but God has something for us in how to live, and it is our faith that serves to be the foundation for the best possible life that we could have. Um, and I want you to know, too, uh, if you ever have questions about faith, certainly things that you hear in a service or something like that, feel free to always ask questions. And I say that for new folks, yes, but also um, for those of us who are here on a regular basis, if you have questions or are struggling with something, please let me know. Let one of our staff members know. We want to encourage you. We want to help you in whatever way we can. Uh, I'm always available after the service. I'll be over in our connection area out the doors to the right. I'll kind of hang out over there. But if you have a question that is not one that I can answer in two minutes on a Sunday morning after a service, stop and you know say something to me or send me an email, and, and I'd be glad to try to get with you um, at some point during the week. Um, because whatever we can do to encourage you and encourage your faith growth, we want to be able to do that. That's what we want to be all about. So um, having said that, let's jump into the message. So M. Night Shyamalan's movie, The Village, and yes, this is a spoiler alert. I get a hard time um, from that from some people. Every once in a while, I always give away the plots to movies, but I feel like there is a statute of limitations to this. It would be different if I watched a movie in the theaters last night that you were looking forward to seeing. This movie is 20 years old. You have had plenty of time to watch the movie if you wanted to watch it. Okay, So I'm going to give away the plot. Because M. Night Shyamalan's The Village tells the story of several families who move into a private, remote nature preserve and live as though they were pioneers in the 1800s. The reason that they do so is not because they want to see if they can survive the way that people used to live way back then, but they did so because they wanted to escape the evil that exists out in the world. Their thought was that if they could isolate themselves from what goes on out there, then it would limit the pain and conflict that they would experience. But what they found was that they could not escape pain and conflict because it doesn't come from out there, it comes from in here. The truth is that conflict and pain is a part of life because we are sinners, and there's nothing that we can do to avoid it. In fact, to understand the significance of this, all you have to do is go back to the very beginning of time. In the fall of Adam and Eve, just after the fall, we read the cursings given to Adam and Eve, and in the curse that God gave to Eve, God told Eve this, your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. And what I understand that to mean is Eve will want her way, but Adam will want his, and the way that he goes about carrying out his desires is being strong-armed in that relationship. And so you've got to understand what happened. Where there was once perfect unity and harmony in that relationship, they experienced conflict and separation. And what Adam and Eve experience is a microcosm for what all of us experience. Conflict is a part of life. That's what happens when sinful people are in relationships with one another. And since we are all sinners, we all experience conflict. 
And so because we all experience conflict, we better try to figure out how to deal with it in a positive manner, in a healthy manner. Because if we don't, it can lead us into all kinds of dark places. To see just how bad it gets, all you would have to do is turn one page in the Bible. Because the very next event that we read in Scripture after the cursing that God gave to Adam and Eve is when Cain killed his brother Abel. Cain, he brought some of the fruit of the ground, and so it was his leftover sacrifice that was rejected by God, but Abel brought the first and the best from the flock. It was accepted by God as an offering, and Cain became jealous of his brother, and as a result of that, what must have been in a fit of rage, he went and murdered his brother. So if we don't handle conflict well, it can lead us into all kinds of dark places. It can cause us to be bitter where we think that the world is against us all the time. It can cause us to live isolated, honestly horrible lives. And so today we're beginning a new series of messages called Finding Forgiveness. So over the next couple of weeks, we're going to be talking about relationships, conflict, and the process that leads us to finding forgiveness and then hopefully, ultimately, bringing about reconciliation. So we're going to talk about that over the next couple of weeks. But as we get started in this series, I want you to think about the relationships in your life. I want you to think back over your life and do a quick evaluation. As you look back over your life, I wonder if you see a trail of broken relationships. Now, if that's the case, I want you to know I'm, I'm not pointing fingers. I'm not blaming you for that. But at the same time, we have to confront the brutal reality and ask ourselves, hey, if that's our personal history, what happened, and maybe there's something that we should do different so that we keep those things from happening in the future. And here's what I want you to know today. The first step in finding forgiveness that leads to reconciliation is this. It starts with you. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning, how conflict resolution starts with you. If you have a Bible, I would invite you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 7. We're going to look this morning at Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 through 5. If you don't have a Bible in front of you, it'll be on the screen as I read it. Or uh, if you have the Version Bible app on your phone, you can navigate your way to our live event and follow along there. Matthew chapter 7 is near the end of what is referred to as the Sermon on the Mount. It's a collection of teachings of Jesus where he talked about a variety of different issues related to life as his follower. And here I think the point of what Jesus is saying in this section that I'm going to read for us in just a second is that conflict resolution starts with you. Listen to these words. Matthew 7 starting in verse 1, do not judge so that you won't be judged. For you will be judged by the same standard with which you judge others, and you will be measured by the same measure you use. Why do you look at the splinter in your brother's eye, but don't even notice the beam of wood in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take a look at the splinter out of, let me take the splinter out of your eye, and look, there's a beam of wood in your own eye. Hypocrite. First, take the beam of wood out of your own eye, Then you will see clearly to take the splinter out of your brother's eye. The first two verses in this section of Matthew chapter 7 are on, they're always on the top 10 list of most misunderstood scriptures in the entire Bible. 
Because verse 1 says, do not judge so that you won't be judged. And people with that verse in mind say, you can't judge me. You, you can't judge the things that I'm doing. Or on the other side of that, people may say, well, who am I to judge someone else? I, I, I can't really evaluate what someone else is doing. And, and the understanding in that is that we cannot, it is wrong for us, to make evaluations on what other people are doing. That we can't ever say that what somebody else is doing is wrong. But that's not what Jesus is talking about. Those two verses are not teaching us that we should go through life with blinders on, never evaluating what other people are doing. It's not saying that we can't critically evaluate and think about the behaviors and things that other people are doing or judge what they're doing as being wrong. That's not what Jesus is talking about. What he's talking about is being overly harsh in our judgments or, or being overly critical in our judgments. It's lacking grace in our judgments. But it's not saying that we can't ever say what somebody else is doing is wrong. It's saying if we are overly critical or overly harsh in our judgments, what we are doing is inviting that same kind of judgment on ourselves. And the truth is, nobody wants that. And so then we get into the section about this beam and splinter. Verse 3 says, Why do you look at the splinter in your brother's eye, but don't even notice the beam of wood in your own eye? And you can understand the picture that Jesus is painting. So there is a person who has a beam of wood, the, the main beam that holds up the roof of a, ha- of, of a house. That's the, the word that Jesus is using there. So he has a beam sticking out of his eye saying to someone else, hey, let me help you with that splinter or that piece of sawdust in your eye. The picture that Jesus is painting is an illogical picture. It would be ridiculous for someone with a beam of wood sticking out of his eye to say to somebody else, hey, let me help you with that splinter. Now, you've got to understand this. The point that Jesus is making is it starts with you. You've got to deal with yourself first. But it's also important to understand that what Jesus did not say. Because Jesus did not say, how dare you ever think that you can go to somebody with a splinter in their eye and say, let me help you with that. That's not what he said. He said, you just got to take the beam out first, and then you can go and help your brother. It's the process that leads there, and it starts with you. The point that Jesus is making is when we find ourselves in a situation of conflict, for us to find forgiveness and reconciliation in that relationship, it starts with us. It starts with us for several different reasons. First, Because there are some things that just aren't worth fighting over. There may be something that's just not worth bringing up, not worth dealing with. It's not worth creating an argument over. And in fact, we read in Scripture the wisdom of this. Proverbs 19.11, a person's insight gives him patience and his virtue is to overlook an offense. So it's important that we recognize that there are some things that just aren't worth fighting over. There are some things that aren't worth bringing up or pointing out um, in the lives of other people. I'll give you a really specific, practical illustration. Everyone knows that there is a right way and a wrong way to put a roll of toilet paper on the holder. 
If you don't know the right way, I'll tell you after the service. But it is probably not worth bringing it up every time that somebody does it wrong. There's some things that just aren't worth fighting over. Now, but having said that, there are some people who in their minds, they think, but I need to help people. That's my, my gift is to point out these things that everyone is doing. They, they need to know these things. But yet in Scripture, we read again the wisdom of overlooking an offense, 1 Peter 4, 8. Above all, love one another deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. Some things just aren't worth fighting over. But yet at the same time, as followers of Jesus, as members of the body of Christ, we do have a responsibility for one another. We have a responsibility to watch out for one another, to encourage one another, and to help one another live in a way that is pleasing and honoring to God. But yet having said that, I want you to know there is not one verse in Scripture at all that would describe our responsibility as being the sin police for other people. In our formed class, so formed, for those of you that don't know what it is, is the process. It's our class that leads to partnership at the table. And so if you're familiar with more traditional language, membership in our church. We'll have our next form class in February, so we'll be talking more about that over the next couple of weeks. Some of you that have not been there know that you're on my list. You will get an invitation to that. You need to come. It's really important. But informed, we talk about what it means to be a partner and the expectations that we have for partners in our church. We try to keep it really simple. There's three things that we expect partners to do. Attend regularly, give generously, and serve faithfully. Pretty simple. Show up, not necessarily every week, but a lot, you know, most of the time, right? Give generously because that's how we fund ministry so that we can continue to make a difference in the lives of people. And then serve because we need your gifts to be able to do what God has called us to do. So that's it. Like That's the expectations. But there's one other thing that I always talk about, and that is accountability. Because there is a sense in which when you are saying, hey, I want to be a partner of a church or a member of a church, what you're saying is, I want this body of believers to hold me accountable to live in a way that pleases God. Now, every time I say that, I know it can be viewed negatively based on past experience. Because if you, someone comes from a church background that was overly harsh in their judgments or overly legalistic or something like that, they can view that as something that's negative. But if we take the past experience off the table and you just think about that for a second, this should actually be something that we all view as being very positive. Because we should want people who are looking out for us, who are when we get things wrong, willing to come to us and say, hey, I think there's a better way to do that. Somebody that we're in relationship with that knows us, that can come to us in love and say, hey, let me help you with that thing that you're struggling with. That should be something that is actually really good, and we want that in our lives. But yet, again, we have to be careful in how we do that, because that does not mean that it gives us the license to be the sin police, meaning that all we do is go around looking for the sins of other people to point them out. That's what Jesus is talking about. It starts with you, because there are some things that just aren't worth fighting over. Now, you probably want to know, well, how do you, how do you evaluate that? How do you know when to let something go? You can overlook an offense when it does not affect your relationship with the other person. 
So when there's not a wall built up and you can treat the, the person in the same way that you would, and it does not hurt, it has not, whatever the offense is, has not hurt someone else and is not hurting the offender. So if that's the case, if you can just go on, your relationship is not affected with that other person at all, and no one else is affected in the process, then you can overlook that offense. Now, having said that, be really careful because I know that there are some here who are conflict averse. I would put myself in that category. And, there, and we are going to automatically think, that's the option that I'm going to take every single time so I never have to confront anything. You can't do that. When you choose to overlook an offense, I want you to, know, want you to understand what it is that you're saying. When you choose to overlook an offense, what you're saying is, I will not bring that thing up against that other person, ever. So if you have a disagreement with your spouse, you can't, if you've chosen to overlook something, you can't in the middle of this new argument say, and here's the laundry list of things that you've been doing for years. If you choose to overlook it, then you have to overlook it forever. Now, with this caveat, okay, because it gets complicated, relationships get really complicated, because there, maybe there are some things that you haven't addressed, that you needed to address, and those things have been going on for years, and they may need to be addressed so that reconciliation can take place. My suggestion in that case is not to try to do it alone, but to do that with a trained counselor who can help walk you through that process, because things can get difficult. Uh, but I want you to know, not everything is worth fighting over. Sometimes you can overlook an offense. The second reason, the reason that conflict resolution that leads to forgiveness, which hopefully results in reconciliation, it starts with you because maybe your attitude on, about or your perspective on conflict needs to change. I'm going to ask you this. Okay, when you have a disagreement, we won't even use argument, a disagreement with your spouse, what do you want out of that? Now, some of you know the right answer. And so you're thinking to yourself, what I want out of a disagreement with my spouse is peace and harmony. I get it. You know the right answer, but the real answer is that you want to win. You want to be right. That's all of us. It's, it's in our nature. That's what we desire. That's why our attitude about conflict may need to change, because it's not about being right. It's also entirely possible that our perspective on conflict needs to change too. Because conflict can allow for our growth. I don't know if you're familiar with this term, EQ or emotional quotient. It's like IQ, but EQ, different letters. What EQ describes is our ability to handle well and deal with our emotions. And our EQ always shows up when we're in conflict with other people. Several years ago, Pastor Pete Scazzaro wrote a book called The Emotionally Healthy Church. And he wrote the book based on his observations and the, the struggles that he was having in his own life and in his church. What he was observing was that their discipleship methods or their methods of helping people to grow as a follower of Jesus were falling woefully short. 
Because on the one hand, what they would do is they would have this process that would lead to somebody being quote-unquote spiritually mature, so they knew the Bible, knew all the right answers, but yet at the same time were incredibly emotionally immature. He used a couple of different illustrations like uh, somebody who sat on the board who refused to ever say that they were sorry. Or a worship leader who every time somebody had a suggestion, they took that as a personal offense. And there's a lot that goes into having emotionally healthy spirituality, things that we could change in our disciple-making process that leads to uh, higher levels of emotional growth. In the book's 250 pages. But I think the important thing for our purposes this morning is to say, recognize conflict can be an opportunity, when handled well, for your personal growth. It's actually maybe not as bad of a thing as we think it could be. Because naturally, we think we need to avoid conflict, if at all possible. But not only does conflict allow for our personal growth, our emotional growth, But it also may lead to growth in the relationship with the other person, a greater level of harmony or understanding in that relationship. So it benefits for me as a person, but then it could be, when handled well, beneficial for us. It brings us together. It's also important to understand when we go through conflict, our desire in that conflict and how it is handled, our desire should be to glorify God, to make God look good. And we have to understand our God is a God of reconciliation. Because of sin, we're all sinners. Our relationship with God is broken. There's nothing that we could do to earn or work our way back to God. But when we could do nothing through Jesus, God accomplished everything that allows us to be reconciled to him. But that reconciliation that God is up to, it's not just about our relationship with God. Because through Christ, God is reconciling all things to himself. And that includes people together. We read it very clearly in Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians 2, the apostle Paul is writing and he says that Jesus has torn down the wall that divides. He is our peace, creating one new man from the two. In the context of what Paul's writing about, he's talking about how two different Groups of people, races of people, Jews and Gentiles, can be brought together because of the work of Jesus. And so the picture that Paul is presenting is that we are reconciled together so that we can be reconciled with God. So every time that we experience reconciliation, when there is conflict, it pleases God, and that should be our desire every time we find ourselves in conflict. It starts with you. It starts with you because there are some things that just aren't worth fighting over. We recognize that uh, conflict may be beneficial for our growth. Handling it well glorifies God. And then understand this too. It has to start with you because conflict is nearly never completely one-sided. Conflict is nearly never completely one-sided. I want you to know you could be the victim. It could be 99.9% someone else's fault. Our responsibility is to look for the 0.1%. We have to think to ourselves, okay, what did I do in this conflict? Is there something that I did to escalate the conflict? 
What was my role in this? Did I miscommunicate something that created the conflict? It's certainly inadvertent, but what's the role that I had to play in that? As Jesus said, we take the log out of our eye. That's how it starts. It starts with us. Now, how do we actually do that? I want to give you three things really quickly. How do we go about getting the log out? Three things that we do. Confess our sins. Examine our words. And then I better look at my notes to get the last one. Put yourself in their shoes. Confess our sins, examine our words, and put ourselves in their shoes. The first thing we do is confess our sins. 1 John 1, 8 says this, If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. That verse, it's really kind of an interesting verse. What the, the, but the idea behind the verse is, if I say I'm not a sinner, everyone else knows I'm only fooling myself. This, is, uh, this confession aspect is me saying to God in the midst of a conflict with somebody else, God, I recognize I am a sinner and I could have done something in this situation, in this relationship to create this conflict. I may not know what it is and it's saying, God, help me to understand what my role is in this conflict. And here's the great promise that we have in verse 9, 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just, or he is right to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's the first part of getting the log out. It's confessing our sins. It's saying, God, help me to understand the part that I had to play in this because I recognize that I am a sinner. The second thing that we have to do is examine our words. Examine our words. James 3, 8, but no one can tame the tongue It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. We're going to think about what we have said to that person, about that person, because wounds are very, or words are very powerful. You know, as kids, we used to say, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. And that statement is absolutely not true, because words can cut deep. And so we have to think about that. Did I say something that could be a hindrance in recon- from reconciliation taking place? And so we examine our own words. The last thing that we need to do in order to get the log out is seek to put ourselves in the other person's shoes, see that conflict from their perspective. It's really interesting. Lots of studies are coming out about how empathy, which is the ability to feel the emotions of other people, is in decline especially so among young people. Different theories as to why that is the case. Uh, One theory is that the pressure that's put on young people today to excel and achieve is making them very self-centered so that everything is about winning. And I don't know if that's completely it or not, but I know that when we find ourselves in conflict, something that we need to do in order to bring about reconciliation where there is forgiveness is to seek to get into that other person's shoes, see that conflict from their perspective. I'm going to finish with this. There's a really fascinating story on 60 Minutes a couple of weeks ago. I don't know if you watched 60 Minutes at all, but there was a story that started off by talking about the differences between domesticated dogs and wolves. Because there were behaviors that we see in domesticated dogs, oftentimes empathetic behavior of dogs toward their owners that are not observable in wolves, even wolves that have been raised around people. 
And so in this observation, the experiments that they were doing, what they found was that there was a marker in a domesticated dog's DNA. I will call it the nice gene. Continued on, and there was a researcher who said this, and you don't have to agree with, I'm not sure I agree with anything that he said, but I thought the point was interesting. He said millions of years ago, there were more than one, there was more than one human species other than Homo sapiens. Now here's the point of this, kind of missed this part. That nice gene that's found in dogs is also found in humans. So this researcher said, millions of years ago, there were these other human species that existed. How is it that human beings, Homo sapiens, are the only ones that have survived? He said, maybe it's because we were the ones who figured out you had to be nice to survive. You gotta be nice to survive. And I feel like in our society, we're losing that. But then it shows up. In the most unexpected place. On a football field. You all have heard this story. DeMar Hamlin nearly lost his life on a game last Monday playing against the Cincinnati Bengals. And this last week we've heard, we've seen the stories. People praying across the country. People giving, doing things that are nice and empathetic. And there's lots of different stories. Lots of heroes that are a part of this story Conflicting accounts, even exactly what happened in the immediate aftermath of his injury. But there was one story that I read that I want to believe is true. Don't know that it is. I want to believe it's true. And after DeMar Hamlin had been taken off the field in the ambulance, there was a period of time where it seemed like the game was going to be restarted. The teams had separated onto their different sidelines and some were beginning to warm up again. And the story that I read was on the Bengals' sideline. That's why I want to believe it's true, because I'm a Bengals fan. The Bengals' head coach, Zach Taylor, turned to his assistant and said, this isn't right. We can't do this. We can't make them do this. Took took off his headset and walked over to the Buffalo Bills coach and said, we're not going to play. And that's why they went to their locker rooms. got to be nice. It goes a long way. And I want you to know, when you find yourself in a conflict, the process that leads to finding forgiveness and reconciliation starts with you. Will you pray with me?